and welcome to Cancrea, home of Canada's Queer Media. My name is Luke Smith. And my name is Sebastian. And uh, the bulk of today's show will be taken up with quite an interesting conversation we have with uh, Rhea uh, in just a, just about 10 minutes or so. Uh, mm-hmm. As we discuss access to trans uh, medical healthcare in Newfoundland, and we also touch on Nova Scotia as well. Uh, but of course, access to trans medical healthcare, um, you know, these are these are discussions that are relevant to the entire country. So mm-hmm. be sure to stick around for that interview a little later today. But before we get into that, I want to talk about some Canadian stories. And uh, let's let's start off with some nice good news. Okay, I like. Okay, yeah, let's start off there. And uh, the one that jumps out at me is the the town of Nine in Newfoundland. Okay. Uh, are you familiar with Nine Newfoundland? Nine. 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 You said Nine is in the German. No, <laughs> no, yeah, that's that's yeah. Come on, it was obvious. It was I a good joke. A, I, 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 I would have been a fool to not do it. So yeah, it is. Uh, it's the northernmost permanent settlement in Newfoundland and Labrador. Uh, okay. It's in the uh, Nunatsiavut region. Uh, my apologies to uh, any uh, indigenous folks if I've mispronounced that. The reason why I wanted to mention it because uh, this tiny little town of Nine had their first ever Pride Walk. It looks like maybe half the town participated. Um, I don't think it was 500 people, but it was uh, a really good showing for such a small town. Uh, okay. We just got a couple of pride flags, a couple of stringy, uh, wavy things. So we want to share our congratulations with the great folks of Nine uh, for having um, a pretty cool little pride walk way out in rural uh, Labrador. So very exciting stuff. Now, something that I think you might take a little bit more seriously okay, is fish and chips. Oh, oh, good Lord. Yes. Uh, especially since I haven't had it in like seven years. Thanks. This to... is true because of the batter. Yeah. You, it's a, yeah. It's a the gluten. There, there is a, a gluten-free chippy here in town that is closed on Mondays and Tuesday mornings for some reason and not open on Saturdays or Sundays, basically four and a half days a week. It is impossible to get to. I haven't had fish and chips in almost a decade. It's very frustrating. Okay. Well, next time you come visit, we'll uh, try and whip up a GF bar and uh, make it work. I bring it up because there have been some uh, incredible drag queens, uh, such as Roxy Cotton, mm-hmm. uh, out in Newfoundland, who held a drag show at Chess's Fish and Chips, uh, the C-H-E-S, so it might be Shays, but I think okay. it's Chess's uh, Fish and Chips. Uh, there were six different drag queens who were all uh, performing throughout the, uh, throughout the event. That's but yeah, I mean, would that be? I mean, Nan Betty dressed up as Dolly Parton from the, to do a rendition of Nine to Five. You know, I would have done Brass in My Pocket personally. I think that would have been a, <laughs> a pretty good song for it. It but, just I mean, occurred to me we have something just a little bit better here in Ottawa, and that is we have a drag queen that regularly performs at a dim sum restaurant. No, it's 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 the Chinese uh, takeaway. It is uh, um, yeah, Chinadoll performs. It, it, that's a dim sum restaurant. It's a dim sum restaurant. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think China Doll is the son of the owners, and really is like the mascot for this Chinese restaurant. I mean, not yeah. only is it fantastic, and you get a yeah. dinner and a show, but it's also very good food. 
Like the, the, it's it's really good. It's just... Chinatown leans into the corniness of it. Like they have like karaoke and noodles on Thursday night, and she just leans into the fact that this is a dumb idea, but you're here because you love it. Absolutely, she, it, it's it's a great night. It's a great night, and and Chinatown's fantastic. I just I think it's hilarious that as part of uh, Newfoundland and Labrador's pride celebrations, uh, celebration, particularly in St. John's, Newfoundland. They found that, a way to uh, integrate COD. Yeah, 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 yeah <laughs> exactly. Yeah, of course, Newfoundland is going to find a way to incorporate fish into that into their <laughs> pride celebrations. Yeah, so the Fish and Chips drag show. I mean, next time I visit, that's what yeah. I'm going to try and sign up for. Absolutely. The other pride event I want to mention, last week, or the last couple of weeks, we have told folks that Prince Edward Island has been uh, uh, sort of celebrating Pride across the island. Uh, Mm -hmm. Well, in Charlottetown last Saturday, over 550 people uh, marched along for the Pride March. Mm -hmm. Uh, Don't forget, a march is pretty much uh, just people walking, socially Mm -hmm. distanced walking, um, Mm -hmm. and does not include floats and so on and so forth. So, yep. And technically, yeah. you don't need a license. You don't uh, need a so permit, typically, yeah. to, to march. Yeah. But you still have to, like, stick to one lane of traffic, and you can't redirect traffic as you're going. Like, there's a whole bunch of little rules. But, yeah, there, there's, yeah, it's easy yeah. to organize. So some local Indigenous drummers led the march uh, through uh, Charlottetown, uh, Charlottetown. And, yeah, it was pretty great. The CBC has some excellent coverage of it for those who want to know about what happened over in Charlottetown. Um, Prince Edward Island, PEI. So that that's that's the good stories that I was able to find. It was the Canadian ones. The Canadian good stories, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, the last story I have is the interim police chief for the Toronto Police Service. Now, this is uh, a police service that's re- you know responding to the unbelievably critical report. Yes, from the the judge into the uh, Bruce MacArthur murders. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, Toronto famously has one of the worst missing persons departments in all of Canada. It, it's kind of known for it, just not being able to find missing people. Or if they do, it's despite the department, not because of it. Because there mm-hmm. are good detectives there. There are very good detectives there. They're just, if they're functioning, they're functioning despite support, not because of it. So the um, there was a, a trans woman, a young trans woman called... Uh... Uh, Laura Wells, and mm. uh, she vanished and was found by hikers um, afterwards. And uh, what's what's really interesting is uh, if you want to find out more about this particular case, the CBC's podcast, The Village, season one was really about Bruce MacArthur, but season two, they're zeroing in on Laura Wells and uh, the police investigation of this young trans woman. And uh, yeah, they, the, this podcast really put some very difficult questions to Interim Chief James Raymer uh, mm-hmm. to find out exactly what happened. You know, the, mm-hmm. the family of Laura Wells found out that there were people identified by the police that were never interviewed or, mm-hmm. you know, there was no substantial follow up. It was just a shoddy half job on the investigation that cost this person, you know, into this person's losing their life. Right. Um, you know, regardless of, you know, the fact that she may have been involved with sex work and, and all of these other things, the sanctity of life here is, is you know, of utmost importance. Mm-hmm. And the interim police chief in Toronto agrees that uh, 
yeah, there, there was failures, uh, failure to follow protocol, paperwork that wasn't filled, persons of interest that weren't interviewed, community that was never notified. The police never told anyone. One of the hikers happened to mention it to the 511, 519 community center, hmm. but the, the, the police never told the community that, that, uh, that this has happened. So yeah, certainly not, uh, not looking good for the Toronto Police Service. Um, but this is at least the service itself uh, acknowledging that that was a bit of a failure. Mm. Well, I mean, it's good that they're, you know, the, the first step to fixing the problem is acknowledging that you have one and they haven't even been doing a good job of that. So this is a step forward, at least. Absolutely. So let's jump in with our first track before we listen to our uh, interview with Rhea a little later. This is My Womb, the Moses Bellinger remix from Vizia. We will be back next uh, after this.
Hello and welcome back to Cancria, home of Canada's queer media. My name is Stiluk Smith. And I'm Sebastian. And earlier in the show, I had mentioned that uh, we have an interview this this week and uh, makes up for the last couple of weeks. And I'm excited that we were able to get uh, Ria um, on the call. Thank you so much for, for joining us. You've written for The Independent um, specifically around you know, the title really says it all, Transforming Transition-Related Surgeries in Newfoundland. Um, thank you for joining us this week. Thanks for having me in. So we we also met, uh, and we've, we've spoken before, I think you also were on the show previously, um, in your role at CHMR, which is uh, the radio station there in, in uh, St. John's, Newfoundland. I think you folks also carry our show, so shout out to all our listeners in the area. Um, but that's we're not we're not going to talk we're not talking radio we're not talking Newfoundland well we are talking Newfoundland but specifically we're talking about access to trans health. I remember you mentioning to me, um, you know, maybe about a year or so back, that this was something that you had been looking into that you felt was was important and something that should be discussed on a on a national stage. Can you tell me tell me a little bit about what motivated you to look into this to begin with? Sure. Um, I, I think I reached out to you after you had a segment on a previous show uh, last year where you talked about uh, the issue a little bit, and it was a, a it was an interesting coincidence because at the same time I was trying to figure out how to access some of these transition related surgeries here in Newfoundland. Um, you know, once. When, once I began transitioning, I uh, realized, you know, there was a lot of hearsay around, you know, what's funded, um, what's not funded, how do you access certain surgeries, and it was really hard to figure out some of the facts, and it was really hard to, to kind of navigate the system. Um, so after running into a bunch of barriers myself, I decided to kind of take a step back and, and investigate this from a more holistic perspective to try and figure out, okay, what is happening here in Newfoundland? And, um, you know, how did these po exit policies we have come to be? Um, you know, what are the gaps and how do we understand them? So that's, that's when I started really looking into the issue. I think, you know, now you've mentioned that it sort of sparks my memory a little bit. I think we were talking about changes to the system in Nova Scotia. Um, and then I think maybe also in BC, I think two of them happened around the same time. And uh, we sort of picked up on that, uh, that, that sort of consensus that was happening in, in both ends of the country. Um, for those who maybe aren't familiar, when we're talking about... Um, when we're talking about uh, transition-related surgeries, what what does that look like? What are we what are we discussing here, so that everyone's on the same page? Well, there's a range of uh, what's what's called transition-related surgeries. Um, you know, every province has its own provincial public health system. In Newfoundland, we call it MCP, Medicare program, but every province has its own. And um, every province has its own list of what it calls transition-related surgeries, which are either covered or, or not covered. Um, so here in Newfoundland, and one of the, I guess, things that I was really looking into was um, our transition-related surgery policy was seriously overhauled about two years ago. It was completely redone. Um, and uh, 
with the aim of, of you know, modernizing it a bit. So as of now, what's, in, what's listed as transition-related surgeries um, here in Newfoundland, it's kind of divided into what's colloquially called, you know, top surgeries or bottom surgeries. So top surgeries might include, you know, mastectomies uh, and chest masculinization for uh, transmasculine people uh, or breast augmentation for trans feminine people. Um, and then, of course, there's a, a range of, of genital surgeries, um, you know, bottom surgeries, uh, which could, you know, include phalloplasty for transmasculine people, vaginoplasties um, for trans feminine people. And then there's a, there's a whole range of kind of, you know, uh, different surgeries along the same lines. <laughs> I think I think that gives us a, a a broad idea, you know, essentially adding or removing up or down, depending on 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 sort of that 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 quadrant that uh, we have in mind. Um, Are the um, other surgeries like the the tracheal shave? And there's some sometimes people do things with like jawbones and jawlines, uh, or uh, no, what are these uh, cheekbones? Um, uh, those are all th those generally fall under optional or um, cosmetic. I'm guessing. Well, they they are. They, they are not covered in most, I can't think of any province that covers them actually. Okay. Um, and so they, that is another area of contestation right now. I know in Nova Scotia, where there's some really groundbreaking work going on in, in fighting for access, um, they're, they're fighting now for tracheal shave and for some of those surgeries, um, you know, facial feminization surgeries, voice surgeries. Uh, yeah, that, that's a whole other suite of surgeries that should be funded, but in most, probably all provinces are not funded. Is there, is there any option for like a partial covering? Because if, if they say, you know, that's cosmetic, we're not going to fully cover it, but you know, we'll, we'll half cover it. That's, that's not perfect, but it's, it's, it's an okay compromise of anything. Um, I mean, I, I'm not entirely sure what the behind the scenes looks like with the, with the, with this particular fight. Well, one of the things that um, kind of became apparent to me, the more I looked into it is that it, in, in effect, that's kind of what the situation is with a lot of, with, well, the top surgeries that, mm. that we're talking about. Um, so, I mean, to, to talk a bit about um, how some of those surgeries are covered, um, for example, take uh, the mastectomies for, for transmasculine people. Uh, the policy on the books says that, you know, it's covered. Um, but in, in, in practice, what people who try to go, you know, who try to access the surgery discover is that um, it, it's... It, it's it's not entirely covered. Uh, so a lot of these surgeries are not actually done in Newfoundland. You would need to travel outside the province in order to access them. And, um, you know, every province uh, typically has some kind of a program. If a surgery, medically necessary surgery is not offered in the province, they will send you to a province or clinic where it is offered. So in Newfoundland, we have what's called the Medical Transportation Assistance Program, which does that. And so um, you can, um, you know, fill out a form in order to be covered. And if you're going, you know, if, if you uh, are going to access, say, uh, you know, a trans masculine person wants to access top surgery, um, they would need to travel. Uh, New Brunswick is uh, the place they, they typically go if you want it to be publicly funded. Um, and then that should be covered by the 
the MCP travel program. But in, in actual practice, that travel program is a cost share program. So you only get, um, it only covers 40 to 50% of what your expenses are. Um, so again, transmasculine people, you know, going for top surgery, they typically wind up paying about $4,000 out of pocket, in addition to their transportation and accommodation costs. Um, so, uh, and, and the other thing about it is, you know, in addition to not getting all of it reimbursed, is that um, it's, or it's, it is a reimbursement program. So you have to front all the costs yourself and hope that after you've done, gone through all the hoops, um, you will be eligible to get some of it reimbursed. So it requires people to have uh, the capital or the credit uh, to pay up front, uh, which a lot of people don't. So the, you know, those are some of the barriers that exist um, for accessing that particular surgery. I think you mentioned the sort of the shakeup in the policy that happened in 2019. And I think it might be worth diving into that a little bit more because this idea of being forced out of province was more common prior to 2019 um, in, in Newfoundland. Can you tell us a bit about what happened before 2019 and which you know, really inspired some of this change in policy? Yeah, so prior to the, to the change, um, in order to be eligible to access any transition-related surgery, um, a trans person from Newfoundland would need to get on a waiting list to be sent to CAMH in Toronto to get diagnosed as a trans person. <laughs> um, and once they successfully did that, then they would go on another waiting list in order to access the actual surgery. Um, the waiting lists to just to go to CAMH um, in Toronto to, to get assessed, uh, you know, they, they advertised the waiting list as being about two years, but um, in practice, it, it got to the point where you were looking at a seven year waiting list just to get assessed before even getting on the waiting list for surgery. Um, and it even got to the point apparently where CAMH started uh, dismissing applications saying, look, our waiting lists are simply too long um, to take any new applicants. So at that point, um, the, some of the more active doctors in the city, medical professionals, um, they got together and they approached the provincial government and said, look, you know, this system is in crisis. Uh, it's, the waiting lists are too long. People are not being able to access the, the treatments you know, we need to revamp this. And they said, look, why can't we do the assessments here in the province? You know, we have trained professionals. Why are we sending people to Toronto to get assessed? And, uh, you know, one of the positive changes that came out of those 2019 changes was that the government agreed to cut out the requirement to go to Toronto. Um, and they made a small pool of local doctors here in Newfoundland who were authorized to, um, to, to, to authorize patients uh, to access transition-related surgeries. So, so that was one of the positive changes that came from that. It didn't eliminate the waiting lists. I mean, you're still talking a couple years um, on a waiting list in order to access the surgeries, but it did cut down the waiting list significantly. And it came with a big savings to the province. You know, I mean, they were paying to send people to Toronto for assessments, which really made no sense whatsoever. Much of uh, Newfoundland is uh, moderately... I don't want to say remote, rural. It, it's a fairly rural province. So I'm guessing there's still some travel stuff involved. Uh, I have noticed that for a lot of issues, COVID has forced people to realize that we are currently in the year 2001 and the internet exists 
and you don't have to leave your house to talk to somebody for half an hour. So I'm wondering if this has affected how these waiting lists operate. Um, or if it will, if you suspect it will eventually, even if not yet, because I'm sure that there's a backlog, but um, ju just the process of being able to talk to somebody remotely is um, like, I don't know, I remember five years ago, people were talking about how amazingly innovative it was that, you know, people in uh, the remote, you know, Iqaluit could actually speak to specialists in Toronto. I remember thinking, why weren't we doing this 20 years ago? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, I don't know that I've heard that it's affected the waiting list so much, but it, you know, it's it certainly created some changes. Um, hmm. You know, um, one of, uh, so, you know, there's a number of I think challenges that you you've identified there, especially when it comes to rural um, residents in the province. Hmm. Um, you know, folks. I mean, even before the pandemic, were were struggling with. Um, how to navigate their way through the system. Mm -hmm. um, when when the government overhauled the policy in, in 2019, they tried to kind of assess, okay, how many trans patients are there out there? Um, and the medical professionals, you know, they all kind of pooled their information. They figured there was about 200 people in the province who are currently being treated for some form of, you know, gender dysphoria. So th that became kind of their benchmark. But they, they also... Uh, the, in the government briefs, you know, they 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 underscored that they they said once we remove the barriers to access, <laughs> we anticipate the you know the the number of uh, patients will increase significantly. So they kind of acknowledged that the the the, the cost was um, keeping a number of people from even coming forward seeking treatment. People knew that this was expensive. People knew they wouldn't be able to afford this, and so they didn't even bother. Um, you know, uh, seeking treatment. Um, I, I guess you, you know you were you were talking about the pandemic and and uh, I guess telehealth, for instance. Um, I I don't know that it's affected waiting lists, but I think it's it's had an interesting effect. You know, um, there there are a lot of I, I think for 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 folks, especially early on in their transition, you know, going into a medical office, dealing with being misgendered, dealing with, you know, there's a whole array of problems when it comes to identification, you know, in the healthcare system. Um, those can all be barriers as well. And a lot of those can really be helped by, for example, telehealth. If you know that your, your doctor who knows uh, about trans stuff is going to be calling you at home in the privacy of your house, you know, that makes it, that removes a lot of those really stressful barriers that people experience in trying to access healthcare. Um, and, and those are pretty serious barriers, you know. Um, so I think it's, you know, could have had a beneficial effect, impact in that respect. Um, I want to, I want to just jump in and sort of zero in on the piece you wrote for The Independent. You had mentioned you, you interviewed a number, you know, a significant number of people and you had a couple of uh, sort of case studies in there of trans folks in Newfoundland who had to do a GoFundMe campaign mm. to to make it possible to even, you know, uh, um, you know, raise the funds to, to cover what the province uh, wasn't uh, able or willing to, to cover. You know, for trans masculine folks, that's around the 4000 mark. But for trans feminine folks, that's ten grand. Like I don't, I I don't have ten grand that you know that I could draw on. And I think that for me it would be, 
it would be a, a serious mission to try and raise that that money. Uh, but the benefits that I have is I have a very large social network because of the nature of my job and the radio and so on. Um, but not everyone is privileged or popular or, you know, access to quick capital. Um, you know, for those who aren't as lucky, how on earth are they making this work? I, th I think the short answer is they're not, you know, I mean, this, yeah you flagged exactly the, the the imperfections with this GoFundMe system. Um, at any given time, you know, I can go online and there'll be a dozen, two dozen people I know here in the province who are, who have these GoFundMes. They're trying to raise money for medical care, um, for tra transition related medical care. Um, and, you know, if, if you've got the social networks, like I spoke with one, uh, one person, you know, he put up his GoFundMe, raised $4,000 almost overnight, um, you know, very popular and well-connected person. Uh, but, I, you know, I spoke with another uh, woman who, uh, you know, she's had her GoFundMe up for um, not quite a year, but, you know, several, you know, close to a year now, and has only raised about $500 out of the, the $10,000 cost. So it's, you know, that, that's not how you fund a medical system. Um, I, I, you did, you mentioned the cost for trans, uh, you know, for uh, trans women's top surgery, and I, I, that might be worth talking about for a moment as well, simply because it's, um, it, it raises a whole unique set of problems, you know, the, Interestingly, um, top surgery for trans women, that is provided inside the province. So there's no travel cost necessary unless you're coming from a rural place. Um, however, the, the, yeah, the cost is you know, close to $10,000, depending on the patient. And um, it's, it's also less accessible than uh, mastectomies. The reason why is that so in 2019 when the policy was overhauled it wasn't it wasn't covered at all before the overhaul they added it in 2019 they said okay this is necessary we're going to fund it but they added this criteria that seems as far as we can tell is the most restrictive in the country um, you can only access uh, top surgery publicly funded top surgery if you have what's called breast aplasia which means zero breast development after 18 months on hor hormones now, every doctor I've spoken with said that simply doesn't happen in the real world. <laughs> if you're on feminized hormones for 18 months, there's going to be some kind of development and yeah. that will automatically disqualify the person from accessing the surgery. So, you know, on, on the books, it says the surgery is important. We fund it. But the fine print means no one has been able to access it. I think um, that's really interesting because I think in your piece and in our in our reporting last year, about the human rights complaint in Nova Scotia that essentially said, you know, uh, the removal of breast tissue is fine. Don't bat an eyelid at that. But the addition of breast tissue um, is, is suddenly, you know, ridiculous. And, and in doing so, that that's sexist, that you're mm -hmm. treating one sex differently from the other. Exactly. So I find it interesting that after Nova Scotia effectively lost that battle uh, in terms of its sexist provision of trans health care, um, Newfoundland says, let's avoid it, let's make it available, but let's insist you take estrogen for 18 months. And if absolutely anything happens whilst taking a hormone for 18 months, boom, we won't fund it. I mean, that just seems, I mean, I, I imagine trans folks are in a rock and a hard place. Do you not take 
the hormones? Do you pretend to take them? Do you take them and, and hope for the best? Like it's it seems ridiculous. I think like I can understand why they would put a time thing on it. 18 months is ridiculous. You're right. That's ridiculous. Hormones usually take a couple months to really start kicking in. And I can understand the concern of like, you know, maybe you do a breast augmentation and then it turns out that 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 individual's biology reacts very, very, very strongly to estrogen. And then later on, they end up with lower back pain and you have to remove something. That's unlikely, but it is a possibility. And, you know, why would you fund for surgery twice? It's distressing all around. I mean, you're... Um, anything to do with uh, the chest or the breasts, you end up like basically laying on your back for two weeks in recovery. It's, it's not an easy surgery. Uh, so avoid that if you can, but 18 months is, is, it's just too much, man. Like, I don't know, like three months, four months. I don't know. I, 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 think, I feel like. I think, you know, in your article, the <laughs> national average is 12, like a year, yeah, the, which the, makes the, sense. Yeah. Yeah. The kind of global standard um, is, is 12 months. Yeah. Um, so it's a bit, yeah, but but yeah, Luke, I think you you really you really hit the nail on the head in terms of what the, you know what the lawyers argued, which is that there, there was a sexist double standard going on. You know, um, trans masculine people people seeking breast removal, no problem. <laughs> They're not measuring doing any measurements to as a as a gatekeeping measure. But uh, trans women, uh, they're they're measuring their breasts to determine uh, if they can access the surgery. So it is really a double standard. Unfortunately, in Nova Scotia. Um, they, um, uh, prior to that human rights case, there was no publicly funded uh, top surgery. Um, and the, the lawyers, it was a really, um, there's a really great trans rights project that was, that was um, kind of put off by the Dalhousie Legal Aid Clinic in that province. So they've been, they've been really targeting a lot of the uh, inequitable healthcare issues. So they, yeah, they argued this was a double standard. Uh, the Nova Scotia government, they um, capitulated kind of, they said, okay, we'll start funding it. Um, what they did is what most provinces do, which is they brought in what's called the Tanner scale, um, which is, it's a scale that's used to measure sexual development. And one of the things, there's a whole set of Tanner measures of breast development. So they said, anyone who reaches Tanner stage two, which is basically a prepubescent breast bud, um, the, anything of at that point or above is not covered, um, but anyone who doesn't reach that stage, they, their their surgery can be funded. Now, the well, unfortunately, unfortunately, the patient who was the kind of the, filed the human rights case, she she was able to access the surgery under that criteria. So the lawyers wanted to continue fighting because they thought, you know, this this double standard, this principle of measuring uh, trans women's breasts is ridiculous. But because um, their their client was covered by by this um, compromised policy, the Human Rights Commission said, "Well, you no longer really have a case because your client is taken care of." So they they'll need to get another client to really try to take down that 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 you know tackle that other the bigger issue. Um, a lot of provinces do employ this Tanner scale, um, but the problem is, and and the good side is that it does give the doctor a bit more discretion in making the call, um, as opposed to in Newfoundland where there is zero, <laughs> no one simply no one can access it. Mm. Um, but uh, you know the lawyers I spoke with uh, in Nova Scotia, you know they, they said the only criteria there should be should be a doctor saying that this is medically necessary to treat someone's gender dysphoria. Um, you know, that's, 
that's the criteria that there should be. I just um, want to clarify here because all of these surgeries already require doctors to say that this is medically necessary. You know, so we're already at the point in Newfoundland and in Nova Scotia where doctors, where your doctor is saying you need this medically, you need this. Absolutely. But then the province is saying, okay, we hear you saying you need it. However, um, if on hormones, your best grow to this size, that's, that's no longer an us problem. Or in Nova Scotia, uh, in Newfoundland, sorry, if your breasts grow at all, even, even the smidgen, then it's no longer our, our problem. Um, so I just want to get that point clear across to our listeners. These, these aren't optional or opt-in. These are things that doctors have said is necessary for each of their patients. But these are barriers set up by the province in terms of accessing additional help. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. You know, in order to uh, advance through the system at all, you've, you, you have to have an assessment both by, you know, a, a medical profession, you get two actually assessments by two separate medical professionals before you're eligible for, for any of the surgery anyway. And the, you know, these are trained professionals. So, uh, you know, why, why all the extra gates? <laughs> what, what I want to kind of move to now, sort of before we, we wrap it up is, you know, you mentioned the, you know, two year, which was a seven year waiting list for Cam H in Toronto. And then the additional waits for the surgeries, folks who have to somehow scrape together 10 grand, you know, gender dysphoria isn't, you know, is something that, that exists in a constant for, for trans folks. It is, it is a, a constant concern, a constant medical issue. And the longer that drags out, the more I imagine that weighs on mental health, you know, the fact that gender dysphoria is a men mental uh, health concern. Um, and I just want to dovetail a little bit here to talk about suicide ideation and the sort of rates of suicide uh, ideation and, and death by in the trans community. Um, do you think that in access to no access to these these medical procedures or these extremely long waits do you think it's costing lives absolutely uh, i mean i i personally know no people uh who um who killed themselves because they couldn't access uh these these surgeries uh, it, it, uh, when when the government revamped the policies, you know, throughout their their internal briefs, they 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 also flagged all these statistics. You know, um, uh, they quoted from the Canadian Psychiatric Association: seventy percent of, of trans individuals considered suicide, forty three percent attempted suicide. Um, you know, the, the statistics are there's no shortage of really grim statistics. Um, and yeah, when you know everyone I've spoken with and. I can speak from personal experience too, you know, once you do come out, um, kind of the, the, the need to access the medical supports, the hormones, the surgeries, it becomes almost more intense in a way. Um, and it's both for, for people's own, you know, mental um, state of mind. It's, it can also be a safety issue, you know, once people start publicly transitioning, um, then, you know, they, in some ways can become more vulnerable, more exposed to violent uh, you know, uh, forms of transphobia. Um, I, there was a study uh, came out earlier this year, I think that that showed actually an increase in um, uh, younger uh, uh, 
you know, school age uh, trans uh, youth experiencing violent attacks. So in Canada, so uh, yeah, you know, it's it's both a, a safety issue, um, but also certainly a mental health uh, issue. The longer people have to wait, um, you know, the 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 worse the consequences can be. And also, when you're grappling with already these mental health health stresses, that can impact your ability to uh, hold down a job. You know, there are documented statistics about um, the higher rates of unemployment and underemployment for trans people. It impacts your ability to save money for these surgeries. So it's a vicious cycle where, you know, the, the very fact that you, you're unable to access these surgeries um, makes it impossible for you to raise the funds in order to access the, these surgeries. Um, and, you know, we see all of these things. Uh, I, I know personally know people affected uh, across all these dimensions. Um, it, you know, it really needs to be taken seriously, both in Newfoundland as well as around across the country. Yeah, it's 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 certainly a, a significant concern. You know, I just feel like it's it's such a um, I'm not Mecca is not the right word, but it's like like this this focal point of this nexus. That's the word I was thinking of. This nexus of all of the things that could go wrong. You know, uh, the, the the compounded mental health considerations, the 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 passability in public, and how that affects you know the the, the vulnerability to crime and so on and so forth. Um, yeah, shocking, absolutely shocking stuff, and uh, certainly something that uh, I imagine was not easy to write this particular article. Yeah, yeah, no, it, yeah, it was, it's depressing to learn about and read about, but I think it's important for people to know about, um, you know, if, if there's going to be change. Um, it's really frustrating in some ways too, because, you know, the, the solutions are out there, you know, um, when people are able to access hormones, are able to access the surgeries, you know, it's remarkable. The, the wonderful things it can do to someone's life. Um, it's just, it shouldn't be so hard to connect people with these, these treatments that exist and, and uh, you know, should be more accessible than they are. Now, I know for our, our listeners in Newfoundland, of course, then, you know, they're very much aware of this. And I think our listeners across the country may be aware that the province of Newfoundland is really struggling with its ability to pay for things, anything really, and, and, and health costs uh, sort of dominate the, the provincial budget there. So I, I understand that maybe there is a push back against covering, um, you know, more and more. However, this is something that doctors have clearly stated, you know, lives are, lives are in the balance here. Um, and the fact that they were sending somebody, sending people to Toronto and back for an assessment is is ludicrous so hopefully they can find other sensible um improvements that can be made and uh hopefully they'll bring these surgeries more uh, equitably uh available um for our listeners interested in finding this particular article you can find it on theindependent.ca all one word theindependent.ca it is transforming transition related surgeries in nl which is newfoundland um, by Ria Roman. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. It is greatly appreciated. Actually, before we go, um, any closing questions, Seb? Nope. All right, excellent. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. And we'll be back just after this.
home of Canada's queer media. My name is Luke Smith. My name is Sebastian. And that was Looking Glass Monsters by Sleepy and the Noise. So Looking Glass Monsters by Sleepy and the Noise. I had promised good news and I have some international good news. 
Okay. We make a point of referencing when access to PrEP, pre-exposure prophylaxis uh, is made available. Because essentially what it does is it makes the transmission of HIV uh, from one person who's HIV positive to somebody who's HIV negative. If that HIV negative person is taking PrEP, then it becomes incredibly difficult for yeah, that so transmission far they found to take place. I mean, the... it's, it's effectively nil. It's effectively nil. The the so far they found uh, there have been people on prep who have transmitted, but when they interviewed them, they weren't taking it properly. You're supposed to take it yeah. at the same time every day, plus or minus twenty minutes, and people just sort of like women getting pregnant because they're not taking their their pregnancy medication properly, which is, I mean, it's maybe not a fair comparison, but at least from a, a medical point of view, it's a fair comparison. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so long as you take it properly, it's basically zero on a virus that's already hard to transmit. So it's... So the Biden administration has asked the... Uh, they've issued new guidance to the Department of Labor in the United States of America that will add PrEP, pre-exposure prophylaxis, to the insurance providers, so Medicare and Medicaid. So this, what this means in reality is that all of these at-risk folks have the potential to be on PrEP, and that can really stymie and slow the progress of HIV with new infections. So I did want to mention that we are keeping an eye on Ghana. Now, in Ghana, it is currently illegal to be homosexuality. I think it's a prison sentence after three years. But they are looking at introducing a new bill called the Promotion of Proper Human Sexual Rights and Ghanaian Family Values Bill 2021. Um, oh my God. And it, 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 this is extreme. If you seek medical care or are referred yeah. medical care or refer somebody for medical care related to the, being trans, which is about yeah. one in 100 people are trans, um, then you could get up to three years in prison. If you are conducting fellatio, so that's, that's oral sex, it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman, if it is on anyone or anything, just fellatio mm -hmm. as a concept uh, mm -hmm. could be up to three years uh, in prison. And the use of any sex toys yes. <laughs> has been added. They're basically going over the very orthodox reading of the Old Testament version of sodomy, which is any sex that does not re result in a child. So like masturbating would be sodomy, doing it in the butt, doing it in the butt with a lady, uh, hand stuff, toys, like anything you can imagine that does not involve the result in pregnancy is potentially sodomy. Well, it's, it's going to be a second degree felony. So essentially anyone who, quote, holds out as a lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, uh, queer, pansexual, an ally, so you could even just be straight and not bigoted, and uh, that's enough to land you a three to five year prison term. So that's what they're proposing. This is extreme, really quite extreme. And very difficult to enforce. I mean, that's one of the reasons why they took those laws off the books in North America. Like you can read old transcripts, transcripts of like lawyers and cops and public defendants saying things basically to the tune of I hate homos as much as anyone else, but we can't enforce this law. It's stupid. So they're going to butt up against that eventually. Mm -hmm. uh, well, that's if, it, that's if it passes. So yeah. we'll, we'll, like I said, we'll keep an eye on the story as it develops. Now, the other story I wanted to mention to you is Hong Kong is uh, currently broadcasting or just finished broadcasting a 15-part series over the summer mm -hmm. um, called Ossin's Love. 
Okay. And it's essentially a love story um, about uh, some boy band, about a boy band and the two of the singers. One of them starts off straight, but realizes through a, a confluence of events that, you know, is actually gay. And the other one, who's the housemate and also in the band, uh, is gay. And it's just a romantic love story that kind of blossoms over 15 parts. Like an in-sync fanfic. Absolutely. I haven't, like... I haven't seen it yet. It's on, it's, I've added it to my, uh, to my watch list, okay. as it were. Um, it's not quite, I don't know if it's available uh, in the West yet. But what's really interesting is that Austin's Love, which is uh, a remake of the Japanese show, is the first time, uh, according to the South China Morning Post, that mainstream Hong Kong television station, that a mainstream mm. Hong Kong television station, has produced and screened a drama focusing mainly, primarily, on the gay relationship. And nobody mm-hmm. dies. It's, it's <laughs> like, you know, it's no one dies of AIDS. No yeah, one yeah. gets, you know, blown up. It's just, it's a nice, happy story with a gay romance and yeah. apparently it's having a bit of a cultural impact in Hong Kong. People, mm-hmm. the, it's sort of impacting the zeitgeist and, and, and the community in Hong Kong. Uh, yeah. Is this something you've seen? Yes, it is. Actually, when I lived there, there was a movie that got released on the film circuit. So this was like like Amelie kind of a thing. Like it was officially just sort of at the Hong Kong Film Festival uh, release, but it actually made a huge impact. It was a movie called Happy Together, and it was about a gay couple. And it was sort of an unhappy relationship that fell apart, but it was basically like two gay men who didn't know other gay men, so they dated each other and it was a bad relationship. So it was sort of a slow moving drama with lots of, you know, crane shots and very kind of European aesthetic to it. Um, But it did treat the couple with dignity as like people who are just trying to figure out what they wanted from their adult life instead of just like these rampant hormonal people. And it it did change a lot of people. When I was there, people... um, when I was in Hong Kong, people started referring to gay couples as happy together. And happy together is also a, a term for like individuals. They're like, you know, Aaron Kwok is happy together. And then somebody else stepped in and was like, no, Aaron Kwok's bisexual, but that's fine. Aaron Kwok being like one of the big, big, big celebrities. You've probably, if you've ever seen a Kung Fu movie, you've seen Aaron Kwok at some point. You may not realize it, but yeah. But even still, like you get things like Stephen Chow started putting positive depictions of um gay men in his movies and he makes kung fu comedies there's no need for that but he does um so far it's mostly just gay men that i know they're they're not really mixing it up that much but you got to start somewhere i guess what i find really interesting is we talk about this culture war against you know trans identity and and this sort of western idea of gay being western or this this global idea of way gay being a western phenomena and i think this like you said local voice local actors you know you know yeah local story so yeah it's really interesting to see that you kind of tackle ignorance through sharing experience so yeah it's very exciting to see that happen by humanizing people you know that this this does a lot more than going out well i mean i'm not gonna say it does a lot more but it's important to mix this in as well as going out into the streets and yelling things that rhyme that's what we've run out of time i was gonna i did want to talk about victor orban in hungary uh calling a referendum on the child protection laws that's the anti-gay laws that we talked about last week we'll keep an eye on it 
but uh, we have run out of time. We're playing yes. out with Blank Page by Voxria. I've been Luke Smith. And I've been Sebastian. And thank you for listening. Your smile broke white Like a wave and pulled me down Just like freedom